Everyone's favorite topic. So husbands, uh, don't nudge your wives, and wives, don't nudge your husbands. Just hear for yourselves, okay? Breathe in, breathe out. James chapter 5. We have taken a break from James last week during Resurrection Sunday to talk about resurrection, to contemplate just the, the reality of resurrection. But part of the resurrected life uh, begins at the opening of the tomb of a dead man. He was killed, he was dead, he was buried, and then he came out of the grave. Now, I've been debating with an atheist this week who has this tendency to call me names and say all kinds of rough things to me, but his biggest beef, I said, look at the resurrection. Either he did or he did not. And he said, well, there's absolutely no proof, which I don't know how he did that much research in 30 seconds, but he did. He says, he's using reason and logic, but the reality is, our Bible tells us that 500 people saw it. And the men that followed him and knew him after his resurrection uh, continued to follow him. If he was killed, they'd have given up. As a matter of fact, they kind of did. They went back to fishing. They went back to what they knew until Jesus showed up and said, hey, here I am. And they, and they heard his voice. They heard what he said to them personally. They, he said their names and they recognized this is Jesus. We've known him for three years, and here he is. He's not dead. So for the person that's struggling with faith and a risen man who was murdered on the cross, if you think that, okay, well, he was almost killed, but he wasn't really dead, and then he moved the stone, it took several soldiers to seal the tomb. So if a guy that was beaten nearly to death woke up and was like, okay, now I'm going get, to get going and make this myth start, he wouldn't be able to open the thing. And so it's just, if you're not going to believe, you can believe whatever you want, right? If you're already bent, you've already decided, then nothing's going to sway you. But if you believe, and yet you're like the man whose child was healed, and you say, I believe, help my unbelief, God can use that. There's humility in that. There's this recognition of, I don't know everything, but I know some things. And the reality of the resurrection is that not only did his disciples continue to obey what he commanded and taught, but they did, these, they did even greater exploits than he did. And he told them they would. You know, you guys are blown away by the things you've seen me do, but I tell you right now, you're going to do greater things than I'm doing. And, and that's amazing to me, that we could do greater things even than the Son of God did in our multiplication and in our sharing our faith with others. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing. And it's, it, my faith in Christ is proof of the resurrection. The fact that I'm here, sitting here, having this conversation in the first place is proof of the resurrection because my life was forever changed 12 years ago. And so that said, part of our resurrected life is continuing to be resurrected, continuing to be changed and transformed by the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. And James is pretty hard-hitting. He's very blunt He's very kind of almost rough with us, but he says it very clearly so that we won't be confused. And, and he says, faith without works is dead. And if you say you have faith and yet your life doesn't look any different than it did before Christ, then is it really a life that's been changed? And so this week we're going to talk about patience. But before I talk about patience, I want to talk about the word itself. He's in the first part of chapter 5, talked about the, the people that are oppressing, the rich, 
those who are taking advantage of their employees, those who are uh, using those who are less than them that can't fight back, they can't afford to have a lawyer to, to go to court with these people that aren't paying them. And he says in verse 7, therefore, this stuff is going to go on. This is the world that we live in. Those that don't have much are going to be taken advantage of. Those who are less than are always going to be looked down upon. He says in verse 7, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Why? Because when Jesus comes, there is no longer going to be any sort of caste system. There's no longer going to be classes. We will all be leveled in the sight of our king. Whether we have bowed the knee willingly or we wait till he comes and forces us to bow the knee to him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody. But then he says here, be patient. So in verse 7, 8, and 10 of this chapter, the word patience means long-tempered. Now, I work with cutting tools. I work with metals. Now, I don't do it with my hands. You can look at my fingernails. They're not dirty. But I've done the math, and I've been a part of the planning, and I've gotten my hands dirty just enough times to know that tempering of metal is the raising of the temperature of the metal and then letting it cool, which actually does something molecularly in the metal that makes it harder and more elastic at the same time. Now, you think about metal, you don't think about being elastic. You think about it being firm and stout. But if you've ever taken a spoon or a fork and you've bent it and then bent it and then bent it back and forth, eventually what that does is the metal, if you touch it at that bending point, it gets hot. And that heat, when it's not allowed to cool, makes it brittle. And when it gets brittle, what does it do? It gets so hard that eventually it goes snap. And then little one's in trouble. Then you've destroyed mom's silverware. You know, and then there's... uh, you're in trouble. So in verse 7, 8, and 10, he talks about patience being someone who is long-tempered, someone who's endured heating up of life, and it happens to all of us, and has been cooled off over and over and over again until we become more durable. And so in verse 11, he uses the word endure. We'll get there, but the word endure and patience both have this connotation in the Greek to remain under something. So to endure means to remain under pressure. So many Greek scholars actually looked at both of these words, endure and patience or long-suffering, and long-suffering means patience with people. In every context that that word long-suffering is, there is patience, Um, and that has to do with relationships. And if you know anything about relationships, by the way, they all require patience because no person is what the other person wants them to be. No person acts the way the other person wants them to act. It just doesn't work that way. We're all so different, and we like to embrace our differences until they encroach upon what our expectations are for the other person. So long-suffering is patience with people, and endurance is typically used to be patience with conditions or situations, and we all wrestle and struggle with these, right? We all wish life was this way. We have our ideal. We have our expectations. And when life doesn't happen that way, we get frustrated. And, and so God uses these things to make us patient. But the definition of patience in this context is to stand fast and stay put when you'd like to run away. Stand fast, stay patient, 
when you'd prefer to run away, to throw up your hands and to quit. And we live in a society that more than any other time has been quick to quit. We've been taught that that's just fine. I quit. I'm going to do, do something else. And in some circumstances, it's not a big deal. But in many circumstances, it is a big deal because we've committed ourselves to things. And so what I want to point out is that patience is not a new theme in the book of James. If you turn to James chapter 1, in verse 2, in the very beginning, he starts talking about patience. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. He says it produces patience. So you may not count it enjoyable, or you may not count it something that gives you joy to be tried or to be tested or to let the temperature of life turn up in your life. But the reality is, is that for the Christian, we can count it joy, not because it feels good. No testing feels good in the moment. But because for us who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, including trials. They produce in us something that comfort can't produce. If you take a piece of metal and you leave it on the shelf, it will never get more durable. But if you take that metal and you put it in a fiery furnace, literally, and you turn up the temperature on it, and you heat it up to its critical temperature just about before it's going to break, and then you cool it down at a specific rate, it becomes more durable. And God is the one with his hand on the thermostat. God is the one who's allowing the heat to turn up. And we blame our, the people we're closest to, our families. We blame the relationships. We blame if I didn't have this job or if this person didn't say this to me or if I had more money or we blame all these things and yet God's on the throne. God's got his hand on the thermostat. He is sovereign even over the stuff that nobody can explain. And so patience means to stand fast and stay put when you'd like to run away. So how are Christians to remain patient? Well, he's going to give us three really more, but I've narrowed it down to three exhibits today. Exhibit A is the farmer, verse 7 through 9. James chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren. Remember, he's not talking to non-believers. Non-believers don't have the Holy Spirit. They cannot be patient. They can be for a time, but they can't be long-suffering. They, they can, but they can't, not by the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to do things, to say no to our flesh, and to do the impossible. And to be patient in this life is not something that the natural man can continue in without becoming frustrated and angry and bitter. But in the Spirit, he says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he, then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He waits patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is imminent. It's at hand. It's coming. And so he says, be patient like a farmer. Now, are there any farmers in here? Very few. 
There are a few of us that have dabbled in it. I've dabbled. So with that being said, I know just enough to basically have weeds all over my garden and produce a little fruit and, you know, not know much and wonder why it doesn't work. But what I do know about farmers is they have to be patient in every part of the process. They can do what they can do, and they can't control any of the rest. They can control the plowing when it happens, which is interesting because the early rain he refers to in this passage, early rain softens the soil. Now, here in Missouri, we're going, stop with the early rain. We don't need any more softening. About a month ago, I saw a meme on Facebook that said, um, oh, good, rain, my mud was drying out. You know, uh, that's what we've got right now. Don't drive across somebody's yard. Don't go play out in the mud. Don't try to mow your grass because you're going to create ruts. It's bad. But the early rain designed by God actually softens the soil so that when you take a plow across the ground, it breaks it open. The ground has to be broken open before it can ever receive seed. If you don't plow the ground, you ain't going to grow much. And you'll have lots of weeds etc., etc. So patience in plowing is necessary. Patience in sowing. Sowing seed takes patience. They weren't getting out there with a broadcast fertilizer seeder going like this, like I do. They weren't getting out the chisel point plow with the 100 horsepower tractor, air conditioning, and a radio, and driving and going, thank God I'm a country boy. You know, you guys have seen the movie. You've seen Polly Shore, son-in-law, and he gets in the thing, and he's like destroying the crops and spelling things. And, but the reality is, we don't get, they didn't, the context he's writing to, they took a bag, they put their hand in it, and they went like this. And they hoped for the best. They could pick what they were going to sow. They could pick where, where they were going to sow it. But the reality is, it takes faith to grow stuff. Because I don't, you know, we might know molecularly what causes things to grow. We might know what conditions to give. But guess what? We can't control the rain. We can't control the weather. We can't control where we live many times. So we got to grow things where we live and where we're planted. And so the reality is the farmer has to experience and show great patience before he can ever even get it planted, let alone for anything to grow. And then harvest. Harvest comes later. So the early rain that he's talking about softens the soil. The latter rain grows the crops and he can't control the weather. Now, he's learned to do the basics, and he does them faithfully. Any farmer I've ever met is hardcore about his farming. He will not sleep. He will not, uh, you know, anything. He spends his savings. He works an extra job to continue to farm. He does all that he can. He's learned the basics, so he does what he knows to do. Farmers don't just stand around. Now, many of them aren't very quick. Uh, I always talk to Steve personally. He's got a relative who's a farmer. If you talk to him, you always wonder if he's going to finish his sentence because he's kind of slow going. He's never in a rush. He's become patient. And so when you have a conversation, you may as well pull up a chair and wait and just let it happen because he'll finish when he finishes. But a lot of that probably become, comes because he's become a farmer and farmers plow straight rows. They go out in the field. They spend hours plowing. And while they're plowing, they, they just have lots of time to think. But farmers don't just stand around. They're always busy about something. 
Well, it hasn't rained yet, so I can't plow yet, so I'll go and take care of this. I'll fix fence. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll feed the animals. He's always doing something, whatever he can do. But what's interesting about farming is that over and over it comes up in Scripture because it's, the Bible's written to this agrarian society. He talks about animals and sheep and oxen, and he talks about farming. And if you go to Galatians chapter 6, Paul takes up on this theme. Oops. Galatians 6. And I'm going to start in verse 6. Where it says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And then he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he's planting, whatever he plants, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Then he says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so he talks about this life of faith that we've been called to is a life of patience. It's a life of enduring. It's a life of not growing weary in well-doing, not growing weary in sowing. And so I want to point out what he says here. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. Now, for the believer, we've been given power over the flesh. We can say no to our sinful desires now because of the Spirit in us. That's the, that's the gospel, that sin no longer has reign, but now Jesus does. But here's the deal. We still have free will, so we can quench the Spirit. We can say, now I'm going to do my own thing today. But the problem is, is as we are living this life, the Christian life, we're sowing. And we can either sow to the flesh we can do sinful things, and there are consequences. That's what we reap, the consequences. The same thing is true for the Spirit. We sow to the Spirit. We obey in the Spirit. We obey what the Word of God teaches us. We will reap in the Spirit. We will reap life instead of death. Sin brings forth death. Sowing to the Spirit brings forth life. And so the reality is, and I talk about this once in a while, but I think it needs to be said, is that Jesus forgives sin. He came to set us free from sin, not to sin. But the reality is, though we're forgiven of our sins, many of you know this, there were consequences from my past life that I still had to bear, even though I was no longer walking in sin, I'm still reaping from the consequences of my sin in the past. And so that's a hard truth. God redeems it, and he'll use it to grow you in patience. But the reality is the sin that you committed outside of Christ is completely forgiven, and yet the consequences are still bearing fruit. And so while there is freedom in Christ to do whatever in the Spirit, there is also consequences. So we need to be careful that we are subjecting our will to God's will so that he can keep us from those consequences. Matter of fact, this week in Exodus, I read, and I cannot remember the chapter, it's 14 or 15, God telling Moses as they went into the wilderness, he said, if you guys will obey all that I've taught you to do, 
you will not take on the diseases of the other nations in Canaan. That you'll actually go out there and you won't be overtaken by the diseases that they've been overtaken by. And one, one example of that is that people are always upset about some of the laws in the Old Testament. One of those laws was about pork. And one of those laws was about eating shellfish. And they're like, well, what does that matter? Come, come into morality. We eat shellfish all the time. Well, that's great. They didn't have no refrigerators. So their nations were going fishing, taking it home, not keeping it cold. They didn't know about microbiology and all of the things that grow in uh, sea life when it's taken out of the water. And so he was protecting them by this law that seemed completely arbitrary. He didn't go into the physics of it and go, well, you guys can't keep it to 32 degrees, and so there's going to be stuff growing it. And No, he didn't explain that. Like, I don't explain certain things to my kids. Not because they don't need to know, not because they can't know. Just at this point, it's too early. Just obey what I said. Why? Because I'm keeping you from consequences. And God's still doing that. He hasn't changed. His laws, his boundaries. You know, he's got laws about sexual immorality. That's to keep us safe. It's to cause blessing. Marriage is to be a blessing. But many of us can attest, and I'm one of those where because of sin in my life past, I then brought all this stuff into my marriage that we had to talk about and grow in grace with each other about. I had to be healed in some ways. My wife also. And so rather than walking down that path, why don't we just sow to the Spirit? Why don't we just obey the simplicity of the gospel? And if we'll do that, there will be blessing attached. And so the farmer has to be patient. That was kind of a rabbit trail. But... Um, also look at uh, verse 8 and 9. He says, Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. His return is imminent. What do you want to be found doing when he gets here? He's come back and it will catch us by surprise. He says, as a thief in the night. Uh, so in verse 9, he goes on and he says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren. He's talking to Christians lest you be condemned. So another thing you need to know about farmers is when they got problems, they work together. They know what it's like when a fence goes down and they got a whole herd of cattle on Highway 21. They know what it's like when pests come in and they need to kill a bunch of hogs. You know, they, they know about that. So they work together. They try to respond to one another. So we need to, as Christians, as we're trying to walk this life of faith, work together. Instead of grumbling against one another, we need to embrace each other and the mess that we are and work with each other to uphold one another. So how are Christians to remain faithful and patient? Exhibit A, the farmer. Exhibit B, consider the prophets. Now, there are lots of prophets to consider. And if you haven't read the Old Testament prophets, some of which are difficult to understand, but if, if you're ever wanting to get into the study of the prophets, consider the fact that there is a context that they're walking in. So sometimes we struggle with books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But if you know the context, it helps. And so in, I want to take you first to Matthew chapter 5. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus speaks about the prophets. Matthew 5. In verse 10, he says, Blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you re- when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so, look at this, we can identify with the prophets, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when he says, consider the prophets, he's not saying, consider these people that have trusted me and lived in their ivory tower and never experienced pain or suffering or worry or doubt or fear or any of the things you can put in there. He says, consider the prophets who are human like you, who are tempted like you, who are called to do hard things like you're called to do, and consider the fact that they endured, and at the end of their endurance, there was blessing. They were patient under affliction, and there was blessing attached to it. But guess what? Just like the farmer who plows and sows, the harvest is much later. Just like the prophets who plow, break up hard ground, and speak to people that don't want to listen, who are sowing seed on hard soil, who are enduring hardship themselves as individuals, that they weren't just ministers, but they were people with needs like you and I. They had to pay for the place they lived. They had to find food to eat. And all the meanwhile, God had called them to teach the word of God. Whatever he spoke to them, they were supposed to speak to the nation of Israel. And yet, because they endured, the promise that what he said would be fulfilled would come much later. So they were telling them things that were going to come to pass, and the people would be like, you're a fool. That's never going to happen. Look at how much prosperity we're living in. What do we need heaven for? What do we need God's blessing for? He's already, here we are, we're doing fine. And they considered the long-suffering of God as license to sin. They considered the fact that God didn't strike him down right then, so God must be okay with it. And we live in a time right now where that is going on. Our nation is not doing well spiritually. We've got financial prosperity But there's a lot of bad stuff going on too. And we think because God hasn't ceased us or snuffed us out as a nation, that he's okay with everything we're doing. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. So the reality is that the the nation of Israel was spoken to by these prophets and they had to endure suffering in order to proclaim the message. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Why? Because he was the favorite, of course. He's the youngest. He's the baby but also because he had this vision God gave him, and then he made the mistake of telling his brothers about it. How dare he? God showed me that I was surrounded by a bunch of stars, and they all bowed down to me. There was 12 of them. 11 stars bowed down to me. And they're like, you're a fool. We're going to punch you behind the barn later. You know? Uh, But then he has this other vision that not only are the 11 stars going to bow down to him, but the sun and the moon, symbolic of his parents. And his parents were even like, uh, I don't think so. But in the meantime, Joseph is a white-collar worker. He's given this coat of many colors. His brothers are all working out in the field. They're all getting dirty. They're all dealing with par- sleeping out under the stars. And meanwhile, Joseph's at home hanging out with dad. And then in the middle of that, they're getting bitter. And then to top it all off, his dad sends him out to check on them. He says, hey, 
Let's see how things are going. Go check on your brothers and see how they're doing. So he's their manager. How'd you like that? Your younger brother is responsible for you. He comes out to see you. Dad's not around anymore. Let's kill him. They hated him so much they wanted to kill him. Their own flesh and blood. Now, we could easily judge them, but the reality is hate is where murder starts. So if you've ever hated anybody you're related to at all, you've already murdered them in your heart. You just haven't done the action. But here Joseph is. He gets sold into slavery. Midianite traders buy him. He gets sold to this household. He becomes a leader there. The, the man's wife wants to have sex with him. He says, no, I can't sin against my God this way. He has integrity. And he gets thrown in jail for it. And, of course, the man's going to believe his wife over this servant, right? He's, he's got to live with her for the rest of his life. The servant can go. But here we are. Joseph has gone through this. It would be very easy for him to go, you know what? God, you gave me this vision, but I, I'm out. This is too hard. I've been thrown in jail for doing the right thing. But then he moves on. He gets sold again or somehow moves into the, the Pharaoh's household somehow. And no, he gets arrested. He's in jail. Pharaoh's servants come and they're arrested too, and he interprets their dreams for them. He interprets their dreams. They get out. He says, Remember we when you get out. Oh, yeah, no problem. Good job. You know, they leave and they totally forget about him. For another couple years, he's in jail, rotting. No, he's not rotting. He's overcoming. He's growing where he's planted and he becomes a blessing. They make him the ruler of the jailhouse. The, 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 the guy that's responsible for the jailhouse gives him all the responsibility. And in the meantime, something happens outside of jail. The Pharaoh has a dream. He doesn't know what it means. None of his people, his wise men, know what to say. And one of the guys goes, uh, one of the guys that was set free from prison, all of a sudden has this strike of memory. He goes, hey, there was a guy in jail that interpreted my dream, and it all came to pass. Let's ask him. So they clean him all up. They bring him out of jail. And God was in charge of that. Maybe it's hard for you to think of this, but is it possible that God made those two men forget about Joseph until the right time so that he could be a blessing to Pharaoh? The promise is fulfilled because he ends up being essentially vice president of Pharaoh, if you want to look at it that way. And then his brothers come looking for food in the famine they don't know it's him. They bow down to him. It all comes to pass. God's promises are fulfilled. We just have to trust. The problem is, is that the promises are always lived between death and resurrection. The promise of the resurrection was given before Jesus was crucified. He was crucified. His disciples doubted it. And then on the third, they had to trust throughout the three days. And on the third day he was raised, he presented himself to them. The promise for Joseph was given before he had to die through suffering and discomfort and false hopes and despair all the way to the point where it's fulfilled. Death of a dream, resurrection of a dream. That's life for us. Life, death, and resurrection. You and I are seeking to be in this kingdom of God and yet we're not allowing God to take us through the death of our dreams to the resurrection of a new hope in Christ. And the, here's the deal. Our expectations will always rob us of joy. 
our expectations of how a situation should go many times will cause us to miss out on the fact that God is blessing in the middle of the circumstances. And that our hope, if it's in a circumstance, is not joy, it's happiness. Joy is outside of circumstances because we trust the God who's outside of the circumstances and in control of them. So all that said, that's Joseph. But look at the life of Daniel. Look at the life of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet to the nation during the time of one of the most wicked kings, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was wearing the pants of the family, by the way. She was, uh, nobody names her kid Jezebel, let's just say that, right? She's not known for being, like, nice. She, she was very wicked in, in the strongest ways. But the reality is, Elijah was told by the Lord, you need to go and prophesy to the king that there's going to be a three-and-a-half-year famine. Oh, okay. So he goes and tells him, and then he runs for his life. And he runs, and he runs. He's told them a hard thing, and in the middle of that, they want to kill him. So they're chasing him down. He runs, he runs, he runs. He ends up in this cave hiding from the ruler of their nation. And there's all these things where God's just seeking to speak to Elijah. And he doesn't speak to him in the windstorm. He doesn't speak to him in the earthquake. Where does he speak to him? In the stillness, in a still, small voice. So consider Jesus. Isaiah 53 foretells his suffering, that he would suffer for people who would reject him. He had to endure through that. He had to pray knowing his disciples are falling asleep 10 feet away from him. They're not even there sticking with him. And yet their rejection provides a time for the Gentiles to receive salvation. Did you know that? The Jews' current rejection of Jesus as their Messiah means that the gates were opened wide for the Gentiles to be receiving faith in Yahweh? We were never offered it before. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the Gentiles, and yet they got their righteousness from God, and they said, man, God's chose us. Look how great we are. They took the grace of God, which it really was grace, to pick them in the first place. Abraham was an idolater, and God chose them because they were the least of these to make his name great amongst them as a nation. No one would look at the nation of Israel and go, wow, they're really great. God picked them because they were Number one, number one seed. They weren't first round draft pick. They were like, no one would pick them for kickball. And, and so the nation of Israel became this blessing and this picture of hope. And they were supposed to be this place of such blessing that the Gentiles would want to be a part. But because of their self-righteousness, they ended up pushing people away. But Jesus was using all of that to bring them to the fullness so that the Gentiles would be saved as well. So, my wife pointed out to me a verse this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2 about enduring. And if you take it from James and you turn to the right, just one book, 1 Peter chapter 2. I, have to look, I wrote it down in Isaiah 53 because I was going to read it to you, but you can read it on your own time for time's sake this morning. You can shout it out if you want to. Oh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 19 through 21. Thank you. Verse 19 through 21 says this. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief and suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it, is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take patiently, but when you do good and still suffer, if you take it patiently, 
This is commendable before God, for to this you were called. How many of you guys got that right, written down in your Bible or underlined? As a Christian, you've been called to suffer for doing the right thing. It's one thing if you suffer for doing the wrong thing. We've all done that, I guarantee it. But to suffer for doing the righteous thing is true endurance and patience. He says, this is commendable for God, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example of patience, that you should follow his steps. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He committed himself to the one who is the judge of all men, his father. And so back here in James chapter 5, in verse uh, 10, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Verse 11, he says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, if you've read the book of Job, just reading it is insufferable. It's miserable. If you've ever read the book, it's like, come on. The book's long. It's poetry. But I think it's written that way so that you'll kind of feel his pain. Just in hearing what his friends, or my pastor calls them, his frenemies, said to him about his suffering. Well, of course you're suffering. There must be some hidden sin in you, Job. But if you read the beginning of the book of Job, it says that he was upright in the sight of God, that he found grace in the sight of God. And so Job here, in chapter 1 through 3, I'm going to try to sum it up. Thank you, Warren Wearsby. I love Bible commentators. They can kind of take a big book like Job and zero it in, but verse one, chapter 1 through 3, Job is in distress. He literally loses everything. I don't know that there are many people walking on the face of the earth, and I'm sure there are right now, that have experienced the loss that Job experienced. He lost everything except his wife, who was not a blessing. She said, why do you hold your uh, respectability? Why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just commit suicide? That's a blessing. The one thing he got to keep was a thorn. And so in Job chapter 1 through 3, he loses everything. His family, everything he probably staked his hopes and dreams on. His, his animals were all killed. He, he was, even his health. He had sores on him that were so bad, he's just sitting in an ash heap mourning. He had a broken pot he's scraping his sores with. That's graphic, right? And so chapter 4 through 31, to top it all off, he's down, his friends show up, they do a good thing. They come to be with him. For seven days, they keep their pie holes shut, and they just mourn with him. And if they kept doing that, I think the things would have went a little bit better for Job. But they didn't. They talked, and they talked, and they talked. And that's the bulk of the book, them telling him he must be in some sort of sin and judging him. Job's defense for himself against false accusation is 
Life between death and resurrection. There it is again. But then in chapter 38 through 42, God delivers Job. But how does he deliver him? He humbles him first. There's a little piece. And it's funny, God doesn't say much, but he says way more than those guys ever said in fewer words. He says, where were you when? Where were you in this? Where were you in that? Basically pointing out to Job, because Job said some pretty presumptuous things too. I don't think you are in the right spot to try to put yourself in my place, Job. Job was righteous in the sight of God, but he still wasn't perfect. God was doing something in Job during the suffering that comfort couldn't create. And so uh, Job is delivered by God. He's humbled by God. He was out of line on some things. He had some wrong understandings. Second, God honors Job and returns double blessing for all he lost in the trial. And I would submit to you that for some of us, that will happen in this life. But it's not promised. For some of us, what we have had taken from us or lost or suffered through will never be rewarded until we see Jesus face to face and we're all that we are in Christ. There are other churches that will tell you otherwise, but I don't think it's biblical. Suffering doesn't guarantee blessing in this life. It just doesn't. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know it. And if you don't, you might be confused by that, but it's just the truth. God has given me double blessing in so many areas, not all, for the things that I had to give up, the things that were taken from me, the things that I suffered through. And so what I want to make a note of is Job did not know about God and Satan's discussion behind the scenes, that the battle that was going on in faith on Job's side, he didn't know about the backstory, that God and Satan were having this arm wrestling competition. By the way, if you've seen the meme online where Satan and God are arm, and Jesus are arm wrestling, Jesus wouldn't be battling. This ain't going to be like, you know, the movies where they're like, there's none of that. If you read in Revelation, the battle of Armageddon, that's basically what it is. Jesus shows up and goes, and it's over. It's like the lamest battle ever. Mankind's like, we've all worked together. We're going to destroy you. And Jesus goes, bam, it's over before anybody even breaks a sweat. The best we have to give in our rebellion against God is snuffed out like a candle. And so um, that said, there was a battle going on, and, and Satan had, had, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He, he's known for being patient. There's songs about it. And so his friends assumed God cursed him because of sin, but Job was righteous, yet he suffered. Righteous people suffered. Paul wrote to Timothy, his young disciple, he said, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Patient endurance leads to maturity and further revelation. In the story of Elijah, when he was scared and he was worried and everything in his life was just coming down, crumbling down, and he he got there to a certain point where he had nothing left. He'd been running from those who would kill him. God spoke to him in a still, small voice. Daniel, in the middle of his trial, wrongfully accused he, he was accused. Actually, he was righteously accused. He was accused for praying to anybody other than the king at the time. And yet, when he was found guilty and thrown in the lion's den, in the middle of the lion's den, God met with him, shut the mouth of the lions. 
God revealed. And what we have is the part that no one teaches in the book of Daniel anymore, the last part of it, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, chapter 9 through 12. God revealed things to him because God allowed brokenness into his life. And so I would ask you this morning, are you allowing God in the early reign, his spirit, to soften the hard out exterior of your heart? Or you establish so much that you won't receive any more seed. As Christians, we continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge until we see Jesus face to face. But as non-believers, here's the reality. The same truth that transformed Moses and gave him a message and humbled him is the same truth that was given to Pharaoh who hardened his heart against God, who hardened his heart against God, who hardened his heart against God. And then God, what did he do? He turned up the temperature and he set in place what Pharaoh already believed. And for you and I, we have two options. We can resist and be proud or we can be humble and receive grace. God's favor, though we don't deserve it. So where are you at this morning? Are you letting the early rain to land on your heart to soften it so God can break up the outer exterior and plant new seed and raise up a harvest of righteousness? Or are you still stuck in the spot where you're like, God is mean and he's, and he's, he's killing my social life and he's, he's keeping me from all these fun things I want to do. He's a joy kill. And, the, and then you're hardening your heart against him. And so uh, I would encourage you, receive grace, receive forgiveness, and, and endure. As believers, endure. Because there is a light at the end of this tunnel and this tunnel, it's long, it's scary, there are doubts, there are fears. Uh, the, the man I mentioned earlier, he, he had had his son healed, it could have his son healed, and he said, Lord, I know you can heal my son, I believe, help my unbelief. And what did God do? He healed his son. He helped his unbelief. He met his need. And so, Father, um, I thank you for these examples of patience this morning. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We know that. We need to be long-suffering with people. They're the only thing that we get to take with us to heaven. We've been given the King of Peace. We've been shown how to suffer patiently, and yet, Lord, it takes steps of faith, and it's hard. So, Lord, grow us in patience. And, Lord, help us to stop making excuses for our circumstances. I would be patient if this was this way or that was the other. Lord, help us to see that you are Lord over the circumstances, that you have allowed these things to be turned up in our lives, but you're watching the thermostat and you know how much we can take and you know how much will cause us to grow in durability. So Father, make us durable believers. We ask it in faith, knowing that you can do above and beyond what we ask or think. And we ask it with trepidation, because we know that if you turn the heat up, that it does get hard. But Father, I pray that you would get rid of the junk, that you'd remove the dross, that you would refine us like silver and gold, that we could be the crowns of joy in heaven, casting ourselves before you and say, thank you, Lord. This is all to your praise. You did it all. Thanks for helping us to trust you. So Father, help us to keep taking one step at a time. We love you, and we pray that you'd help us to apply this, Lord. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.